0: Good morning. Good morning. To jump from last week's reading in the gospel reading from John 10 to this week's reading in John chapter 14 requires a full sprint with someone who can do the triple jump. There's <laughs> a long, lots of ha- has happened here. But in particular, it means we have to back up to John chapter 13, to a chapter that many of us know about, the night when Jesus wash the feet of his disciples. Peter was confused. And I think others probably get him to speak up so that they're all confused. Jesus told them they wouldn't understand what he was doing until later, which only made them wonder what's so later about washing feet. Some have suggested, of course, that this could pertain to the washing of baptism, as a man to perform last week with Oscar, who probably didn't understand not much more than Peter understood about the washing of the feet. So Peter all of a sudden thought he had it all figured out, so he asked Jesus to wash his head. Jesus, as he often does, switches lanes and said, and you are clean, though not every one of you. It helps us that Jesus hints at the meaning of that, though not every one of you, when John jumps in and says in John 13, 11, for Jesus knew who was going to betray him, and that was why he said that not everyone was clean. But you have to think that those disciples had no idea what he meant. In Jesus' talk that evening, which was an evening like no other, an evening when foot-washing turned into a meal that turned into a little speech with dark innuendo, and more than its share of, I wonder what that meant, questions from the disciples. Not least when Jesus said, My children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, so I will tell you now where I'm going. You cannot come. So we have an evening in which there's a foot washing, a betrayal, and Jesus is about to depart for who knows where. So Peter, lagging, as always, a few steps behind, opens up a theme that would become a monument for John chapter 14. After Jesus said, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later, Peter makes with bravado a claim, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Switching lanes, Jesus lowers Peter down to reality with a statement, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. One has to wonder if Peter knew what Jesus said. An evening like no other. Their last meal together, they didn't know that. Foot washing, they didn't quite get that. A betrayal, they're wondering who. A departure, they're wondering what. And a denial, and they don't know what's going on. If it weren't for chapter divisions in our Bibles, we would just read straight from the end of chapter 13 right into chapter 14 with, uh, with a very appropriate beginning for Jesus. The opening of chapter 14, one reads, Do not let your hearts be troubled. That seems to be about the right response to all that has happened in this evening like no other. He looked into their faces that evening and saw turbulence, consternation, agitation, and chaos. This same word about trouble is used for Jesus three different times in the Gospel of John. In chapter 11, at the death of Lazarus, Jesus was troubled. In chapter 12, he's troubled about the prospect of his own suffering. And in chapter 13, he was troubled that he had to announce that someone in the room would betray him. So being troubled is not sin. The Greek word behind the translation troubled can suggest a variety of meanings. A new Greek lexicon, the Cambridge Greek lexicon, mentions the following possibilities and nuances. Disturb, stir up, disorder, confuse, upset, unrest, agitate, and perplex. And I added in the margin of mine chaos. That's what is going on with these disciples when Jesus says, do not let your hearts be troubled. Recently, our seminary, my seminary, not the more sanctified one, more often represented in this room, has been in chaos. Seventeen complaints by former employees, administration, and staff about power abuse by the president led to a board allowing him to resign in a public letter that completely exonerated him. The absence of one president led to an interim, which led to another interim. Some staff have resigned. Our provost and dean, uh, Lynn Kohick has resigned and fled to Houston. She'll have a good summer. (laughs) And I will laugh at her. We have a new dean in place as an interim. Some staff, as I said, have resigned. New people are being appointed. It's a cultural mess. That's where I teach right now. The Roy's report has its eyes on us, which is never good news. The words of Flannery O'Connor came to me this week. She wrote about raising peacocks. If you haven't read this essay, it's amazing. She said, the habits of any pea pea chicken left to himself would hardly be noticeable. But when multiplied by 40, they become a situation. (laughs) That's what we have at Northern, a situation. And I'm not so sure that Jesus saying to any of us when we're in chaos, do not be troubled, is the thing we want to hear. Sometimes I'd like to kick someone in the cushions on the backside. That's sanctified language because of Trinity students who are present. (laughs) Other schools are going through tough times and chaos as well. Trouble, disorder, agitations. And our church has been through some agitations. And our nation. Gun violence in the United States causes turbulence and chaos and just bewilderment by so many people. Marriages are struggling, and some things are uncovered in a therapist's office that cause turbulence and anxiety and chaos. So the word trouble very much as, takes us straight to the heart of that evening of emotional disturbance, anxiety, frustrations, and heartache. We've all got a situation. When you're swirling in chaos, you could be forgiven if you mutter to yourself, to Jesus, telling me not to be disturbed is not going to get the job done. You might prefer that your boss gets sacked, or that an associate decides to find another job, or that your depression meds will lift the darkness and bring in the light or kick someone in the cushions. Jesus, on this night, like no other, offered words of comfort for those experiencing moments, days, weeks, months, and years like no other. Many of us are there. Perhaps we hope we're at the end of those moments and days, but we're not sure. Perhaps we're not even close, and we know that. We know that something the disciples did not know. The night, unlike any other, was going to get worse, and much worse, and really ugly. One of our challenges can be stated like this, and I think with this we join the disciples. It's hard to see God at work when agitation Attends our every thought and prayers, and when our prayers suddenly morph into imprecations against our enemies. It's hard to see God at work then. You'd rather do something about it yourself. Maybe Barbara Brown Taylor's experience can help us find God when agitation attends our every thought. When she was a child, her Methodist pastor asked her to sit up front uh, for the sermon, to listen to it. He talked that day about the beauty of God's creation and our duty to be awed by it, which led to a profound awakening for Barbara Brown Taylor. She writes, It was as if someone had turned on all lights, not only to hear myself spoken of in church, but to hear that my life was part of God's life and that something as ordinary as a tadpole connected our two lives. When the service was over that day, I walked out of it into a God-enchanted world. Pretty good expression. She has lots of them. Where I could not wait to find further clues to heaven and earth. Every leaf, every ant, every shiny rock called out to me, begging to be watched, to be listened, to be handled and examined. She says, I became a detective of divinity, collecting evidence of God's genius and admiring the tracks left for me to follow. I love her mission that she got, Barbara Brown Taylor's, when she says, I became a detective of divinity. That might just help us in the midst of chaos, Maybe we, in the middle of our chaoses and turbulences and troubles, need better eyes to see divinity in the midst of turbulence. And we come to the end of chapter 13 to hear that opening word in chapter 14. We wonder, don't we, what Jesus would say next. Chapter 14 is, if anything, a chapter designed to offer comfort. On the night like no other, Jesus orders his his followers not to let their hearts be troubled. He explains why, but what he doesn't tell them is that on second thoughts, he has decided to stay with them and not go away to the Father. Nor did he tell them their troubles would disappear, and they would enter into Narnia and be happy forever, dancing with Tom Bombadil, and Harry Potter. That's a mixture of stories, for those of you who don't know. What Jesus does in chapter 14 is to give us perspectives that change how we experience the troubles that we experience. And I would like to talk to us this morning for us to reflect on what we can do to become better detectives of divinity. The first thing I think we can do, is we can learn to sense the presence of Jesus at all times. He says he's going to the Father to answer Peter's question, where he will prepare rooms with a view for them. He will not leave them as orphans, he tells us. He will send the Spirit to them to be the revealer and guider. He will return back to earth and then take them to those rooms. Also, he can take you, he says, to be with me, that you also may be where I am. One way to view these first few verses in John chapter 14 is to see them speaking about heaven. And not all John scholars think that's the way to read it, but we'll start there. The immediate prospects of the evening were not good but the eternal prospects were entirely glorious. The concern here is not what rooms will be like. What matters is Jesus' presence with them and their presence with him forever. Another way to view this promise of presence is to think of John 14, 23, which says, "'Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. "'My Father will love them,' and we will come to them and make our home with them. Here it refers to the same word of coming to them. So many Johannine scholars think that this presence is the presence of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps what Jesus means then is that he will return to them in the presence of the Spirit and then eventually take them to be in these rooms. Detectives of Divinity In the midst of chaos and in our own chaos, sense that Jesus is with us. Sometimes it's palpable. Sometimes it's not. Especially in turbulence, it's not. But he's there whether we sense him palpably or not. Jesus is with us in the midst of turbulence. He doesn't promise, remember, that he's going to take these things all away. He only promises that he's going to be with us, and that's what we have to have as we face the turbulence, the agitation, and the trouble. Second, detectives of divinity believe that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the way. After his words about presence, Jesus says, you know the way to the place where I am going. He says that. Peter says he did not know where Jesus was going. So Thomas, everyone to double down with Peter, asked Peter's question for him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? Jesus was the way, or Jesus turns the way question into a who question. He's not escaping into a Jerusalem tunnel. They're there. Nor does he revert to some road through Samaria or down to Jericho or south to Bethlehem or out to the Mediterranean coast. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the way. It helps that the Greek word for I is ego. I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the sixth I am passage statement in the Gospel of John, and they're beautiful sayings. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate or the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way and the truth and the life and I am the true vine. Add to these that Jesus uses what are called absolute I am's. Before Abraham was, I am. That's pretty serious. This sounds like Exodus 3.14, I am who I am. The I am's, of course, the I am statements are metaphors, and metaphors get us to think about something by thinking about something else. As Eugene Peterson said, metaphors activate our imaginations and they create fresh meaning. Jesus says he is the way and the truth and the life through the consternation of an evening like no other. Our chaos challenges each of us to turn our faces toward Jesus the way and turn our lives over to him. It helps us to settle the troubles in our days and nights to remind us to follow Jesus, the way. I'm not saying that this is easy. The Greek of this sentence is simple, but it's very hard for some of us who teach Greek to leave it alone. It simply says, I am the way and the truth and the life. But almost everybody thinks there's a connection between these three words, something like Jesus is the true way, Jesus is the living way, Jesus is the true and living way. It's simpler in Greek than that, but as I said, we won't leave it alone because there's more to it. That's the way John writes. Detectives of divinity in the chaos believe Jesus is the way through the chaos and forward. They know too that the way can be a struggle with ups and downs. Jesus provides here no magical solution. There's no genie in a bottle that will pop up and give us solutions to turbulence. He gives us a way to face the chaos with Him leading the way. Benedict Award in her book, Give Love and Receive the Kingdom, wrote this about the great saint Cuthbert. A Christian saint, she writes, is not remembered as wise or great or righteous, but as a humble and sinful human being who learned through who knows what agonies and darknesses so to walk in faith in Christ through his daily life that at the point of death he revealed to others, if not to himself, that underneath it all were the everlasting arms. At times it is difficult to see the everlasting arms of Jesus with us in turbulence. At times we may wonder if he's even present. And maybe John's third word of comfort will help us become better detectives of the divinity of Jesus present with us. Detectives of divinity, thirdly, perceive uh, Jesus' presence as God's presence. They perceive Jesus' presence as God's presence. Now the theologians like this one. Jesus finishes his response to Thomas by saying, If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on... You do know him and have seen him. Their chaos that night about this night's ugly prospects leads to some theological confusion. The statements of Jesus are supposedly easy for the theologians and students in this room who've taken those courses with Dr. Van Hooser and Felipe. But for Peter, Thomas, and Philip... What Jesus said was totally bewildering. Philip says, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Don't make statements to Jesus that he can respond to. (laughs) Jesus responds to Philip with three questions. Don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. Second question, how can you say to me, show us the Father? The third question, don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? These questions, with answers all over them, make a stunning claim that can calm our chaos. To see Jesus is to see the Father, because Jesus is in the Father, and the Father is in Jesus. Theologians call this the mutual indwelling. And in classes, we call this perichoresis. This is the mutual indwelling of Father and Son, so much so that the great I Am so indwells Jesus that Jesus is the great I Am. In the eyes in the face, in the body, in the life, in the teachings, in the actions, in the cross, in the resurrection, in the ascension, in all these, we encounter the fullness of God. That is God to us. Knowing Jesus as knowing the Father makes us all detectives of divinity. Finally... Detectives of divinity observed Jesus expanding his work all over the world. I believe this last section in John 14 was the one that Peter and Philip and Thomas thought they understood, but it's the one that is the least understandable to us. John 14, 12 says, Very truly, I tell you, this is John's favorite language to introduce something really important. Whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I'm going to the Father. However these greater things are going to be done, trusting God's power, praying, doing the work of Jesus in our world, what Jesus says is that it is good for us to leave so he can be God's presence, in God's presence, to empower you and me to do more than he even did. That is stunning and a little ridiculous. I have yet to feed more than 5,000 people. About 12 is a max, you know. And not many of us have raised people from the dead. But Jesus says, we will do even greater things. What did he mean by this? I think he means that we will extend the work of Jesus in our world and expand the work of Jesus, and we will see in those extenders and expanders Jesus at work, and others will see in our extensions and expansions Jesus at work. He sent out the 12, and then he sent out the 70, to do what he had done and to do more than he had done because there were more people doing these things. His presence at the throne and the presence of the Spirit in us empowers us to extend and expand the work of Jesus in our world. In whatever gifts God has given to you, in your daily lives, others are often seeing the work of Jesus In your life. You can see it in others. As detectives of divinity, Jesus' words incite us to trust him in the chaos for more than we think we can accomplish. He incites us to turn to him, to look into his face, and in his face see all that God is doing in this world. If we look, we will see With the eyes of a detective, thank you.